Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast. Conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. Today, David sits down with Diana Lett, who co-founded the Irie Vineyards with her late husband, David Lett. Enjoy. We met with Diana Lett of the Irie Vineyards on October 5th, 2020, in the yard behind her home, looking at their second oldest vineyard planting. Soon after their wedding in October of 1966, Diana and David Lett started transplanting 3,000 young vines from a nursery David had planted near Corvallis in February 1965, using what Diana calls her wedding shovel. But I'm jumping ahead. Let's get the real story from Diana. So we're sitting, your house is over there, and the second vineyard you and David planted is right behind us. We're, we're sitting in the middle of your driveway. Yes. We would be hit by the dump truck if it came in delivering gravel. Yes. But it's such a cool place. <laughs> and it allows us, I mean, this is the view that I remember when we were in your kitchen and in the dining room, these are the vines that we saw. Yeah. And probably the first time I met you, they weren't even planted yet, but no, they were in process. No. They were in process. We had just bought the property, right. the house, and it had this uh, two really? and a half, three acres here in the back. And so we were, and it was cleared, so we were ready to start planting some more Pinot Noir back here. And this is our home vineyard. And I have really cute pictures of Jim and Jason as just little tots carrying big buckets of grapevines to put in here and, and lots of friends helping plant. By that time, we had enough friends to help. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, One of the things that we're trying to do with these 10 videos is to get an idea of what life was really like in the 1970s. I mean, when, or in the 60s even for you, People who visit wineries in the Willamette Valley today. Oh, it's so different. <laughs> yeah. It's another planet. <laughs> yes. And I guess partly is because there was no wine industry. I mean, it was literally be, being created out of thin air at that point. It was being created by people who did not have wealth. That's for sure. Yeah and who were working second or third or fifth jobs in order to mm -hmm. supply enough income to be able to plant vineyards or buy bean steaks at two cents a piece or whatever. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to look at first, though, is your husband, David, is pretty much the beginning of the wine industry. For most people, the story leads to David Lett and his... Uh, escape from uh, dental school and going to Davis and uh, meeting people and starting to realize that uh, Oregon would be a great place for this. 
And at Davis, you didn't yet know him. Nope, I didn't know him at all then. Yeah, so David had bought the original, not this vineyard, but the vineyard just beyond that, mm -hmm. even before you met, right? He had found it. He had found it. Yes. Like, and this we're, was, we're talking about this like days, you know? Wow. Everything all came together like, ta-da. <laughs> and so. was this, he, he planted the nursery down in Corvallis in 65. Well, he came up here in 1965 in January with his 3,000 cuttings and, you know, rounded up a real estate agent and wanted to start looking for vineyard land. But he also needed to get those cuttings in the ground. And so our real estate agent said, oh, I know, I've got a friend who's got some land. You can just put him on there. He's got water and, you know, have him start rooting and we'll start looking for vineyard land. So basically, that's what, that was the start. So those were the first Pinot Noir cuttings to come up here to, to and, the Willamette and Valley. And Pinot Gris, for that and matter. And Pinot right? Gris, and a, a very Chardonnay, lots yeah, of, yeah. that in that family of vinifera grapes. Yeah. Um, and he had finished at Davis, and he had traveled in Europe, and he so he came up here, and he was ready to get started. I remember him telling me and others that when he was in Europe for that year, I mean, he visited Chuck Corey and Alsace, but he visited Portugal. Oh, he went to England, Germany, France, Alsace, and northern Portugal. He had a letter of recommendation from his professors down at Davis, and he got the royal treatment wherever he went. And so he really got to talk to a lot of growers and producers and really looked into climate and what varieties were growing where and why. And one of the things was, why are you growing this variety here where it barely gets to maturity instead of something that's a lot easier? And they said, um, you know, well, because the flavors are better. And we weren't doing that in this country. Right. Well, our wine industry in this country was really just getting started. Particularly for... Anywhere, anywhere for, in the yeah. country. Yeah, yeah. It was just, we were just on the beginning of that right. movement. So he had fallen in love with Pinot Noir, and that was it. Why was he interested in Pinot? I mean, where did that come from? Uh -huh. Well, that was one of the benefits of being in class at the University of California at Davis. They had enough money to buy some really good burgundies and pour tastings for the students. Oh. And... David said that was his second cosmic brick. The first one was, oh, I think I'll grow grapes. And then the second was, I've got to do Pinot Noir. This is it. So then people said... And that said, really came from that those, year and those, a half at Davis. Yeah, those tastings at Davis, in his classes at Davis, yeah. yeah. So he, then he became very fascinated with... It only grow, they're only growing this well in Burgundy. So is there someplace else it could grow? And so that, that put him on his quest. And at one point he said, as far as he was concerned, there were three choices of where he wanted to settle down. Where he thought the, that Pinot Noir could grow well. Well, yeah. and, and, but one was northern Portugal. Yeah, but I... You think that was just romanticism? Well, was it he, the girl? No, it was probably Coburn Port. He made a <laughs> lot of good friends at Coburn Port. And they had all those lodges up in the mountains in northern yeah. Portugal. But he really did think, and we actually have some grand grapes growing in Portugal right now. They've got a nice vineyard 
up near Ponta de Lima in northern Portugal. So I don't think the winemaker there probably, well, I probably don't need to be saying this. You can cut this out. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They may not specialize in making Pinot Noir. Probably not. Yeah. But but the grapes may be fine. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, in essence, David and Chuck Corey, even Bill Fuller, were overlapped this one year at Davis. Yeah. I think there were like five or six guys in this class. There was I mean, one even th- Koblet was kind of from Switzerland, was there not that year, but the year before? Just right. They, they yeah. kind of overlapped. Yeah. They all knew, they knew each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he had... Yeah, Werner had been here. Chuck was interested in growing grapes in Oregon because he was from Oregon. And, uh, you know, and also he was wanting to do an adventure. David was like, well, I'm doing Pinot Noir. That's, that's my focus, not just growing grapes. I want to do Pinot Noir. So About I think he was more interested in the grape growing yeah. and proving that could be done well. And yeah. I think David was interested in making good Pinot Noir. Right. And he did always say grapes are, I mean, wines are made in the vineyards and and it's the climate, stupid. You know, it's got to be, the climate has to be perfect. I don't think I've used that term for two nights. I was on some interview a couple of days ago and somebody was asking me, what's, why is the Willamette Valley so important? And I used exactly. Did you really? Because that just popped out of me right now, but it is. And and she thought I was calling her stupid. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of people make a lot of fuss about the soils and the different things like that. But the 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 main thing is the climate. And we have this beautiful maritime, long growing season, cool, cool. It was cooler. It used to be. <laughs> it yeah. used to be cooler. Yeah. We can go higher now. So that was his quest. Right. That's Pinot Noir. So that gets us to 65. David had planted the nursery in mm-hmm. Corvallis. And he was searching for vineyards. Searching for vineyards with a realtor. And uh-huh. that, I presume, was sort of in the summer because he planted that vineyard in, what, March? Uh, yeah, February. February, that's right. February, Feb- finished yeah. in February. Yeah. Had him in. And then he, well, he was working for Weeks Berry Nursery at 75 cents an hour, and that wasn't going to make it. So he, he landed a job just by total coincidence with Scott Forsman textbook publishing company. And he was their Northwest salesman from California all the way up to Alaska. It's a great territory. So, and he started making friends with various bookmen. Story to be continued. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But one of the bookmen that he became friends with was actually a woman. Because you started into the book business, too. That's right. That's how I got involved, was in 1966, in June, I got out of school in Dallas, and I got a job with Scott Forsman College Textbook Publishing Company as, um, well, they were opening a college division there. This is an aside, but it's interesting. I said, well, well, where where do I go? Where are the offices and stuff? And they said, well, it's at the uh, Texas School Book Depository Building on Dealey Plaza. Mm. I know. Oh, that was the building. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, we always think of it as very scary looking. It's just an office building. 
And that was Scott Forsman's building. Oh, my gosh. And so I went to work there, and you'd go up into the room there, and here's all the boxes full of textbooks and everything where Oswald shot Kennedy. I was that's close as history. <laughs> yeah, I, I had, I, I'm sure you had told us that, but <laughs> no, I, I, I just don't think about it very often. But that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, that's definitely an aside. You don't have to. But you and David were at a national. Well, sales they, meeting, about, I worked for about two weeks, and they said, "Come to Chicago. We're getting all of our new people that have worked here for a year and a half or so. We're getting everybody together and go over all the new books and." You, you all get to know each other and everything. And they and uh, it's called the New Man's Conference. And it was 18 energetic young men and me. <laughs> so <laughs> I have my new little briefcase and suit and everything because I was going to be a professional woman. Went to Chicago. Oh, before that, I had a friend in Dallas who said, when you get there, be sure you meet Dave Lett. I think you're going to like him. I think you'll like each other. He's, he's going to grow grapes in Oregon. So I didn't know anything about wine. I didn't, certainly like anybody else in this country, had, hadn't heard of Pinot Noir. And I wasn't really sure where Oregon was. But I met David, and he was such a good salesman for his project that three months later, I was standing out in a field in Oregon with my new wedding shovel. <laughs> so that I had a background in Western Civ and literature, and I had grown up on my grandparents' farm, had early childhood in my grandparents' farm and loved it. And I was all set up for the romance of growing wine and going, getting into this adventure. And David was so excited about his quest for growing the most romantic grape in the history of the world in a brand new place. And so, who, you'd be crazy to say no. It was great, so I just jumped. <laughs> Do not try this at home. I mean, it's hard to imagine you growing up in in the South, down down yeah. South, yeah, Alabama and Arkansas, and then going yeah. to school in Dallas, yeah. uh -huh. and then not quite on a whim, but pretty, pretty close, huh? Pretty close, just a just getting married. And it was exciting. I, he was so enthusiastic, and it sounded like uh, an opportunity I would not ever get to have an adventure like that. Plus, he was really cute. <laughs> he was very cute. <laughs> I want to leave that out. And you were 22? And I had just had my 23rd birthday. 23. Yeah. And he had just turned 27. Our birthdays were right, right yeah, there. Yeah, right close, yeah. So here you were. You were living in Silverton, which is 35 miles from here, on the other side of the Willamette Valley. In I'm not, I'm kind of assuming it was, I, I never saw it, but I'm assuming it was not a mansion. It was a darling little apartment down on the Silverton, Silver Falls Creek. We had a, it was right downtown. It was underneath the lawyer's office. Uh, it didn't have running water, though. It was... 
It was just $40 a month. <laughs> but you had to go upstairs and use the lawyer, the bathroom up by the lawyer's office. Wow. And fill a, a, a gallon jug, wine gallon jug with water. And that was the water downstairs to cook with and stuff. So, but it was, it was great. It was neat. It was a wonderful little place to live. So that was 66 and you lived there? We lived there for a year and yeah. then got pregnant and decided that was no place for a baby. But, but that year we lived there, we were driving back and forth to the new vineyard property and down to Corvallis to make sure the nursery all, was... Well, we yeah. were digging out all the, the, by then, very substantially rooted young vines, <laughs> which involved my new wedding shovel. <laughs> uh, so we got those, got those vines out and got them all bundled and everything. And um, I was entranced to find out what cedar toe was. The, the cedar shavings, it smells so good. And we put them into burlap bags and, you know, yep. wrap the, wrap the bags so it. they would stay moist and the roots right. would stay good. And so, yeah. yeah. Spent a lot of evenings trimming little root vines and things. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So we met in the summer, married in the fall, dug out all the vines and everything, and got ready to transfer them up here to the vineyard that we had made an offer on, and it had been accepted. And the farmer, before all the papers and everything went through, told us that we could start clearing and getting it ready. It was an old blown-down Prune orchard from when the from Columbus, Columbus Day, Day storms. storm, yeah, like yeah. everybody, yeah, yeah. So that we we were working all those places plus the book job, right? So that was it was a full schedule. Yeah, and once you were pregnant, did you leave the the book job? Well, I left the book job as soon as David and I married. Okay, I left the paying book job. Got it. I got to keep the free books. <laughs> yeah, right, right. The, uh, so, we don't pay yeah, you. Yeah, so I did all the, I was David's assistant. Right. Customer service rep, whatever <laughs> the title might have been. So because he was, he had to travel. He'd go out on two-week trips. I traveled a lot with him, though. And that was wonderful that first year because he went all the way down to Carmel and San Francisco and all the area, Idaho through Oregon, Washington, and I didn't go to Alaska, but that was also part of his territory. Yeah. But I got to see the Northwest. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah, because you didn't know yeah, any I of had, this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hadn't had any sort of experience with this part of the country, and so getting to travel with him all over was really fun and, and great. Yeah. yeah. And his dad lived in Salt Lake, so we'd go as far as Salt Lake and then all over. Right, right. That makes sense. I assume that your life changed dramatically when Jim was born, and that was in 67? Jim was born in 1968, in the spring 16, of 1968. Yeah. yeah. And by then you had moved over more? We lived over in Carleton at that time. We moved from Silverton over to Carleton. I had forgotten about Carleton, yes. Yeah, and Carleton was this funky, sad little town full of loggers and... Yeah. It was tough, and they thought we were well, highly suspect because I had hair that was clear down here, and David had a beard. But he had grown a beard so that the professors at the college would take him seriously because he had such a baby face that 
<laughs> they always thought he was one of the students. So he grew a beard and smoked a pipe and wore a tweed jacket and tried to look, you know, kind of academic. <laughs> <laughs> and you lived in Carlton until almost 70? We lived in Carlton for about two years, two and a half years. And Jason was born there in 1969. And we bought this, the house and this piece of property that joined on to the original vineyard in the fall of 1970. The fall of 70. So around the time that the first grapes were coming off the right, first that was piece our, of We had our, we, oh, and this is, this is involves you. <laughs> you and Jenny. <laughs> I was going through some journals about two months ago, and I came across one from summer of 1970, and, or fall, and it was September, and it said, we just, we just signed on our house. It's ours now. We're starting harvest, but it's a really rainy day. Uh, I'm going to go up to Portland tomorrow with my friend Meredith, and we're going to a place called Contemporary Crafts Gallery. And check out, Meredith made these big, yeah, yeah. big concrete, concrete planters. They yeah, were beautiful. And yeah. so I went up there, went up to Portland with her. It was very exciting. Her daughter was going to babysit for the babies. And so we were standing out on the, so I described this in my journal, we're standing out on the deck at Contemporary Crafts oh, Gallery, yes. yeah. and there's all this bamboo and stuff, and the rain is coming down. And I, I said that I looked through the bamboo down, and you could see a little uh, cottage or a little studio, studio right? down below. And all I could see was that this woman's hands uh, turning oh. a pot, turning a pot. Well, when I read that the other day, I ran in and called Jenny and I said, oh my God, Jenny, listen to this. And she said, that was me. <laughs> so that, that, did, she, you saw her, you I didn't have any contact hands. beyond didn't that. Any, no, I just yeah. saw those. But to have that in my journal was wow. just, really got me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't put very much in my journal. <laughs> It was very special to get to write in it. <laughs> so that was the so that fall, was of, fall 70. of 70. You must have... Did, that was did, first harvest. Did yeah. you have the, the, the turkey processing plant at that point? Yes, yes. We had, oh, we had worked really hard to design a winery and had a very nice little winery to build, to build over, over, on the, over on the hillside. Yeah. And uh, we couldn't get anyone to loan us 15 cents. It was... Not even relatives. They all thought we were, you know, nuts. I was just going to pour it down a rat hole. So uh, Jim McDaniel, who had the greenery over there in McMinnville, he was kind of interested in what we were doing. And he said, well, I've got this old building over here that's just full of junk, you know. And so he says, we, you can clear out one of the rooms and use it if you want to. So we rented a room there for $25 a month. And that room... We made the first wine in because we didn't have very much, so it was, yeah. we didn't need a whole and, lot. And of was room. that what became the main room of the winery there? No, it's a one of the barrel rooms now. Oh, okay, but a couple of years we, you know, we still had no chance of getting any money. So right. the next year, Jim McDaniel said to us, "You know, I'm just going to sell that building if you want it. You can have the whole thing and all the refrigeration equipment and everything for ten thousand dollars." 
And we were like, oh, God, thank God, because it was 8,000 square feet. It had been built for food processing as an old turkey plant from World War II. Right. And it had drained floors and refrigeration equipment and everything. So it was not very pretty, and it was really needed a good, I don't even want to tell you how much it needed to clean up. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but so we bought the building. So that was a real find, and you bought that in the summer of 1970, and you had your first grapes, um, and made the... F made the first Pinot Noir, and the, the a little first bit of Pinot wine Green, and, in, yeah. in, in the Willamette, in the Willamette Valley. Valley in some time. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. yeah. A first vinifera wine, probably, since they, they have some history back in the 1890s yeah. and stuff, but, yeah. but that had long been forgotten. We didn't right. even know any of that right. history at the time. We thought right. we were definitely... The, First ever, and as it and as it turns out, a lot of that history was fabricated by the people who were trying to enhance their reputation. So, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> the gold medals and things. Oh, but, there's um, always a lot of that. Yeah. As we, as Ginny and I, and our friends uh, Paul and Rita were thinking about moving out to the country and kind of having art studios, we we ran into. A realtor in Dundee who said people had planted grapes. Uh -huh. We went and looked for those grapes. We never found any, but we ran into Dick Erath later in the afternoon. We had a friend in Portland who worked for Bill Blosser at oh, Portland State. Yeah, yeah. And um, got her to introduce us. And um, so spent, um, I think, the day, we had a day meeting in his office and either then or sometime soon, he and Susan invited us to the little house down at the bottom. Oh, yeah, they were living down Where the they were living, yeah. mm -hmm. right? To a May Day party. And um, it, to me, it seemed like all the industry was invited. I know for sure you and David and Jim and Jason were there, and there may have been others or not. And it was the Blossers. That could have been, that was a pretty good percentage of the industry. Well, it was. <laughs> Uh, in my fantasy, the, the, the Ponzi's and no, whatever. No, no, yeah, no, but no, I, I didn't even know them yet. Yeah, so... Well, it, so that March, I mean, that January, um, Bill and Susan showed up, but, I mean, basically the Corys told us we needed to meet this young couple that were looking for land. And so we met them, and they purchased land up at the top of the hill. And that March, I went up to Portland with Susan, and she said... Oh, she was going to drop in and meet. Oh, she introduced me to Jenny that day. And what I'm trying to figure out, this was before we had met Susan, if it was March of 70. Okay, well, so she was meeting so, you then, too. So she took me and then met Jenny. Okay. And Jenny and I just, yeah, we just really loved each other right off the yeah, bat. Yeah. And then in May... Um, they, Bill and Susan invited you guys right. and us right. and the kids right. to a picnic down at their house. And uh, you and David hit it off great. Yep. And I remember you all went off to look at grapes or do something, and Jenny came here to the house with me. And we just, we started yakking then, and it was the beginning of God knows how many hours on the phone and talking <laughs> and all that. So, yeah. So, she's... She's been my best friend for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> She's the kindest person I ever met. And, you know, 
I, I, I treasure that. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I think she looked, we both looked to you and David as our role models of how, how we should be in this industry. Because we had, we had no idea what we were doing. You were just either. ahead of us, luckily. And, yeah, uh, just a little bit. But, well, I was thinking your first project with David and with Dickie Rath and Bill Blosser was you got... The land use? You all got all this information together and started presenting to the Yamhill County Planning Commission saying that these hillsides are really valuable. They're right. much more valuable. They can be much more valuable in vineyards than in subdivision. Right. David had been looking at the Dundee Hills for couple years or a year before he finally decided I don't care they're too good I'm gonna I don't care if they are gonna build houses here they're too good I, I'm gonna buy property in the Dundee Hills so but they were all mapped out oh yeah they were all planted since yeah. the 1920s yeah. Yeah. yeah so you all prevailed thank God uh, yes yeah, so, and and it had a lot to do with the with the planning director oh what's uh, his name um, it'll come back to me when I'm not having to remember it on the spot. Was it Ken Friday? No, it was before him. Okay. Um, but we've been in contact. I mean, he's long since retired. He lives over in Happy Valley or someplace. But Well, he uh, should get a stipend of wine. Well, <laughs> we need to get... I, I, I have this dream of having him and Bill Blosser and oh, David great. In, a, in a little seminar uh, to talk about this because uh -huh. it... Arguably, Yamhill County is the center of Oregon's wine yeah, industry yeah. because we preserve the hillsides to be planted. Yeah. Um, and Washington County didn't do as good a job, and, um, and this was as close as people could get without having to pay the prices for housing sites yeah. to plant grapes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And they were all like these beautiful south-facing slopes yep. and just the right, you know, everything was perfect. Right. And oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you all prevailed on that. That was No, good. That, was, that was an important thing. There's yeah. no question. And um, the parallel universes between our two families are, are very substantial because, um, well, well, literally, not at that May Day party, but sometime that summer, we invited you over for dinner. This would have been in Portland. In Portland yeah. In, because we were still starting to build the house out here. And, and, and you brought this. Oh, a bottle of our first wine. Well, now that would have been a little later. Just, when would this have been? 1970. This that would is have 1970. Been, that would have been bottled in July or August. And it would have been right after that that we would have had the dinner and... David probably brought that in, not necessarily that bottle, but one that looked just like right. it. Well, um, and that was the first bottle of Willamette Valley wine I'd ever had, and probably most people had ever that had. Was that, the, had that was our first vintage, and, and Chuck Curry had his first vintage that year, too. This was our first Pinot Noir, and, and David was disappointed in it when it came in because he thought the color was a little too light, and it wasn't, like, perfect. And he wanted our first wine. So we had a friend, Clyde Van Cleve and, and Doug Lynch. They were, they were working on a label, this calligraphy and label. But they also did this little fun, it was going to be for just less formal wines. Right. 
and we could do whatever we wanted, white or red or whatever. But so David decided to go ahead and put the, the first Pinot Noir in this, the 70 Pinot Noir. Years later, we tasted it, you know, or several years later, we tasted it, and it was fine, and yeah. it was great. And, oh, he said, oh, I could kick myself for putting it in the... <laughs> people thought it was May wine. <laughs> but, well, I, but I was so impressed that here was this person who had made this who bottle. brought in of, a real bottle of wine. Yeah, yeah. Which was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a big deal. I mean... Yeah. It was proof. So, <laughs> okay, so he brought a real bottle of <laughs> yeah, but it was bottle it was made by somebody that I knew and and it was made here and, and it was made here. here. I was used to bottles of wine that I mean I wasn't all that used to wine, but bottles of wine were sold in the store and they were made by some, who knows, but some mythical place. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But and this. It was such, it made it so real that if you planted grapes, you could actually make wine. And the, and the year after 71, the harvest of 72, we went down and started, don't forget the corners, and uh, marching um, around in the bins. Um, yeah, with fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and really saw what the process was. Of, of making wine. The year after that, I was uh, the first uh, official unpaid intern. That's right. And um, I was thinking about, I don't think we had a crew then. It was still pretty much a one-man operation. And I know David was very grateful for your help and your camaraderie. Yep. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, there, there are several great photos that are in all the PowerPoints to show what, what the experience was. So, oh, you so forgot that part. I forgot it. I forgot it I totally. Forgot. Oh, yeah. But, up there. <laughs> but that's yet another one of the things that connected our two families. This is really Ginny expressing her thanks to you. It's, it's more than that, too. But it's specifically you. It was our connection. Yeah. 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 And that... You're the only person in the wine industry that is was on our bottles. Everybody else were friends that, but you were both a friend and obviously in the wine business. And so um, I think this was, for the longest time, this was what our winery was known for, was this label with you on it. The woman on the label. Yeah. Well, it was the woman, but this label had you on it. And for those that bothered to look at what it said, someplace, maybe not this vintage, but somewhere or other, you were identified, and I think people figured that out. And Jason said, oh, I can't even go in a wine shop without my mom looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I threatened to ask you what, what you what you thought about being on our label, but... Uh, oh, I thought it was fun and kind of glamorous and... and uh, what I love to do with it was really mess with people's minds, you know. <laughs> why is she on your label and why are you on their label? That's weird, you know. So that, and then that led into the whole friendship thing and, the, yeah. you know, and it was fun. And I got a new appreciation for Jenny's art because it took hours and hours oh and hours of drawing, but we got to talk the whole time. So that was great. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. Good. Thank you for that, contribu that 
contribution to our success. <laughs> This wine. I know. We never I was did. Getting kind of thirsty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thinking about how good that would taste. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for bringing this. Yeah. Well, 2018 Pinot Gris. Yeah. At Yum. some point, I want to talk about Pinot Gris with you. Yeah. I mean, part of the legacy of David and Irie is being the first to plant Pinot but also Pinot Gris, um, obviously making the first wine. And, and that legacy is almost like a story that's bigger than life because it's, it's, it's existed for so long and been repeated. Um, sort of a belly button story, yeah, isn't yeah. it? I mean, where everything sprang from. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but Pinot Gris has always been overshadowed by Pinot Noir because 70% of what we have planted here is Pinot and it's what the place is most associated with. And yet David's vision for Pinot Gris was almost that it would be the white version or the white wine like Pinot Noir. I think so. I think, he, well, he had enjoyed it very much in Alsace and... Um, and he thought since it's so closely related to Pinot Noir, it could be a really good grape in the same uh, climac climatic climatic conditions. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and um, uh, he wanted to try it out. There weren't any vines in the, in the country, except for there were four vines in the kind of the mother collection down in at Davis. Down at Davis. Yeah. And so they let him take some cuttings. I think he took 180 little things like this. And got those rooted, and then, you know, then we took some cuttings off of those and got those rooted, and just, and finally, you know, had enough vines to make something with. But um, we made we made some Pinot Gris uh, that first year. Did you? Kept it separate. Really, yeah, we liked it. We liked it. And I suppose for the next 10 years, we were the only producer of Pinot Gris. Oh, yeah. You all, you and Ponzi's got some... Cuttings starts from, from us, yeah. and um, I think 1981 was the. F I know that the 1981 was the first Ponzi Pinot. Yeah, and we were 1984. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, as yeah. as the three of you all had Pinot Gris to schlep to the market, you went out together and did a little Pinot Gris team. Well, and we did we did a joint tasting at the I'm Heathman. Gonna, Cheers. I want to have some of this to talk yes, about. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for bringing this. Yeah. One of the interesting topics to me, vis-a-vis -vis David and you, was Burgundy. Mm -hmm. In 73, when I was working with David, probably half the mentions of Burgundy were kind of negative for David. Well, in this sense that he was concerned that there weren't enough good winemakers in Burgundy and that there was a lot of, not everybody's wine by any stretch of the imagination, but that there were, there were Burgundies that were not as good as they should be. And, and I think in his mind, the Willamette Valley was allowing, as long as we would focus on quality, 
there was a better chance of there being a wider breadth of quality wine being made. And, and I bring up Burgundy because one of the things, of course, that we did together was woo some neighbors up the street here a little bit mm -hmm. um, to come from Burgundy to Oregon. And, and that, was, that was a bit of a joint venture also where our joint distributor in Oregon, Henny Hinsdale, uh, was the distributor for Drouin, and Robert apparently um, got Karen and Howard Hinsdale to get you and Bethel Heights and us to agree to take the, the daughter of... Oh, Veronique, uh, yes. Veronique as an intern. Yes. And what that led to, we couldn't have possibly imagined. Um, we thought she was coming over for experience, and apparently what she went back with was, in essence, a plea to her father, wouldn't it be great to be making wine in Oregon? And I don't know whether that was coming from him to her, getting her to agree to be the winemaker here, or... Um, but in any case... Or to give a woman a chance to be a winemaker. Yeah, there's that too. And that was also some adventure. Yeah. You know. Well, and from Robert's standpoint, I think he was curious what it would be like to make wine without... So many restrictions. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. French, the Burgundy system is very tight on what you can do and what you can grow, where you can do it, what, you know. And that probably was some of the what David might have been referring to. And that might have been too. That yeah. might have been what he was meaning. Yeah. You know, that there was some great wines coming out, but that there was a lot of just sort of ordinary stuff Plunk. being, you know, plonked along. Yeah. And that's true with any wine industry, sure. except Oregon. Well, uh, We have uh, a minimum of plonk, I have to say, yeah. because you guys, all of us, most of us, were highly idealistic when we were working together to make our regulations and our expectations and our sort of marketing efforts and all of that, we, were, we knew we couldn't make it on quantity. Right. So we wanted to make it on quality. And good for us. Yeah. We did it and we created a precious um, uh, thing. Yeah. I, I don't think you can't. No, I, I mean. You can't just pretend that that's something. We really worked hard on making quality wines. And it, it seems to me that, and I don't know if we, how much we talked about it, but that seems to have always been part of the conversation in my mind. It was incessant at our house. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was. We talked a lot. There were lots of meetings, as you probably recall. And there were some people who thought, well, we should have you know, we should allow up to X percentage of other grapes to be put in, and we should be able to do this, and we should be able to do that. And I remember that you and David and several others were like, no, let's do it as stringent as we can. Right. Let's, let's, let's aim for the best. Right. And uh, proud of us for that. Yeah. Because it costs money to do it that way. Potentially. Uh, and... and I think the thing that we were betting on, which in the end probably was true, was that by having higher standards and by really focusing on making 
the best possible wine that we would first attract attention and then support for the kinds of pricing that we really needed mm -hmm. to make this a viable life. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, Willamette, the, the wine industry in the Willamette Valley, in, in, certainly in 50 years, was successful by anybody's calculation. Beyond, beyond our wildest dreams, I think, wouldn't you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And it's hard to point to another region in the New World which has such an impeccable reputation, which allows people to believe. I mean, if, if you talk to sort of casual wine consumers in New York or London or Tokyo, and you mention Willamette Valley, they say Pinot Noir to you. Mm -hmm. And that and high quality Pinot yeah, Noir. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's kind of amazing that in a lifetime we created that. So going back to the Druan story, both you and David and Jenny and I and our winemaker, all, and Lizzie for that matter, all went to Burgundy in 1988, sort of at Robert's insistence, if you will, because he really wanted to talk about what probably was a fantasy at that point in his mind of doing something in Oregon. Yes, he said, I would like to do something in Oregon. Yeah. yeah. And he got us looking for land. Your vineyard manager, Joel, found the piece of land that they first bought. I put $1,000 of earnest money onto it, and um, things started to come together. Mm -hmm. the, the story to me that was really intriguing is after you and David came back from Burgundy and the land was purchased, you and David and Jenny and I were having conversations about how did we want to interact with this? Mm -hmm. Because the first, the first concept that the Druans broached to us was sort of a joint venture. And I don't know what, when you were in Bones staying in the, uh, in the, uh, staying the, with them. Yeah. 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 If they had talked to you about that same thing as a joint venture, or were they talking about it being their thing at that point? I think uh, it was pretty general. It was yeah. like, what can we create something? What right. do you think? What do you, you know? Yeah. When Robert came for IPNC, the first IPNC in 87, he was then talking about something he was going to do, but he needed help and he needed connections and. And then I think we had been cautious about, you know, we'll be we'll be happy to be your friends and your good neighbors. And your he asked David, I remember, to say, "Would you be my caution?" Meaning, help me, help me navigate the, you know, some of the politics of it and that kind of thing. To not to not be seen as somebody, you know, swanning in from Burgundy and right. taking over everything. And be, and so he asked David to help him be cautious about it. But I think we all, the four of us, decided that we wouldn't get formally involved, that it would be better if we all continued to do our yep. individual things. I know one of the things that Robert still, I, I, I think, makes the experience of the first person in Burgundy doing a winery outside of Burgundy and doing it here in the Willamette Valley is 
the reception that we gave to him and his family where they're still everybody's good friends. Sure, I mean, that, we're, I got a lovely note from Robert not too long ago to see if we're all okay and, and saying that they're tired of their garden, <laughs> of being at home. But, um, wow, that's great. Um, you know, we have a kind of a backstory to that, you, of course you know. <laughs> um, our mutual friend Becky Wasserman came over here in 1978 or maybe early 79 to sell barrels. And she was kind of interested in what was going on here. Oh, they're growing Pinot Noir here in Oregon. And she took a bottle, uh, she took a couple of bottles of our 75 Pinot Noir back to France and unbeknownst to us, entered it into a tasting in Paris that was sponsored by the Goemio uh, gourmet magazine and just wines from all over the world and our people but, but it was specifically only no it was no, all it was sorts all of wines yeah, 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 yeah right and uh and not all of them strictly wonderful wines it was just kind of a melee yeah. but she entered our wines into the pinot noir category and they came in and part of the top 10 and Robert said, made us the feelings that this, you know, this was not very professional, not done. very professional or not, you know, let's, he said, I would like to have the Pinot Noirs in this category against some of my Pinot Noir, you know, more, more professionally made or not professionally made, right. more <laughs> higher quality, <laughs> higher quality yes. burgundy. Yeah. So Goemio agreed to restage the tasting in Bone, and Becky was one of the judges, and there were twelve other, or eleven other judges, and they were did the tasting at the Druan Cellars, no, Hall of Justice of the Dukes of Burgundy. I remember that oh, was that's quite right impressive, <laughs> especially when you say it in French. Yeah. <laughs> very, we were now we knew about the second tasting because we had been contacted to please send wine, more, more 75 Pinot Noir. So what for? And so Becky said, you want to do this. So we sent more wine, and they had the tasting, and our 75 Pinot Noir came in second, two-tenths of a point behind 1959 Chambon-Musigny, which still impresses me. <laughs> still get a chill thinking of it. And boom, it hit the press, and it was in the international press and all over the place and every newspaper in the country was calling us and it was really exciting because that was what, our fourth, fifth vintage? Fifth yeah, vintage. sixth vintage. And, uh, and it, it's like all of a sudden, you know, we had people calling. I'm sure they were calling other people in Oregon too. Well, Do you have but, wine that yeah, you could sell? Yeah. Yeah. But, but no, that was... That, that was 1990, That right? was, no, it was 1979 was the first tasting, and then I mean, 1980 yeah. Yeah, was 1980. the tasting yes. in right. February and in yeah. Burgundy, yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that was, you know, I think some of the folk story might have been that Robert was upset. I don't know if he was upset or not, but he certainly became more interested, I'm sure. Yep. No, that, he definitely that, did. He made... In what's going between on Between then and... The internship of yeah, which Veronique. was five or six years later. Yeah. yeah, but he made one visit himself and addressed the uh, Willamette Valley. Well, what would it have been? 
probably the Oregon Wine Growers Association mm -hmm. meeting in that was meeting in Eugene that time. Yeah. And he came into a meeting. He was selling wine, but he came in and sort of addressed us and then left. But he we was had clearly, lunch with him, and he was so dignified and lovely. He has lovely manners. He's he's. He's exactly what he should be. Yeah. You know, it was quite nice. Yeah. And he was very gracious. And so one of the things I've tried to figure out is what role did you define for yourself <laughs> as opposed to David's role? Is that a fair question to yes, ask? Yes, and it's a, oh, a little bit two, two roads <laughs> that I can take. Uh, the, f the first was that when our gym was born in 1968, uh, we didn't know it right at first, but within a year or so, that there were problems. So he was diagnosed with autism in the spring of, well, actually, the day before that we met that we yeah. were all together. Yeah. The day before we had yeah. gotten the diagnosis of autism. Even getting the diagnosis of autism at that time was very was so uh, rare yeah. because nobody, it, it was worse than Pinot Noir. Nobody knew anything about autism and it was a, it was a terrible, it was a terrible thing to get, you know. Well, um, there were, there were, uh, I mean, at some point you were being blamed for it. Oh, well, at the time, Mothers caused autism. They were called refrigerator mothers. And I thought, well, I'm not very refrigeratory. <laughs> and, and I also have a perfectly normal other little kid. And uh, I, I trusted that we weren't causing this problem. I knew we weren't. But it was hard times. Emotionally, it was hard. But because I had this child who had a lot of special needs... And Jason, who was just smart as a whip that I had to keep up with as well. Um, well, Jim was really smart too, but it, yeah. The, yeah, we just, it was our, you know, I had a, I had a bunch of mother work to do and right. teaching and advocating and finding out and all this. So what happened was I was not able to be as active formally out in the wine or even go to a lot of the events or any of that kind of stuff. So I was home, but I was really interested and involved. So I did it. I was in the background. I did a lot of editing, writing, organizing, calling, doing a lot of stuff that would maybe back up what David was doing and what was going on, but just stuff that I could do from home. I was also very involved with our business, and I was doing all the secretarial and the backup and whatever, yeah, in the days before the internet where things had to be typed out and, oh, I mean, and God. Typed over again. That yeah. was what, if you made a mistake, you had to type it over. And also, I remember this, if the phone rang, you had to go answer it. And having a child with autism that you stop in the middle and say, excuse me, I have to go answer the phone, does not work. <laughs> so that, that was one of the things that was difficult. But um, so my... My early decades in the wine business were paddling as fast as I could underneath because we had lots of company. We had lots of things going on, lots of entertaining that we did, like trying to do events and all that sort of stuff. And at the same time, having this, this little 
I don't even know what to call it. A, a, a whole, a whole other world. other you, world yeah. was going on yeah. that I was trying to deal with. And, and then I also got very involved in advocacy for autism services because there was nothing. Um, nothing. No, they didn't know anything about autism. Right. And so we had to like do the research, uh, information. Then I started advocating. I got involved with the state and was on the Board of Developmental Disabilities Council. And I was president of the Autism Council of Oregon for several terms. And oh, it makes me tired to talk about it. <laughs> I don't know how we did it. Yeah. But because that, that, that took every hour of the day. Every hour of the day and then some. So yeah. um, I was very busy, but it wasn't out I spent more of my outward energy working with the schools and the state and that sort of thing on autism. And wine, David kind of took that as his, you know, we helped each other, but right. that was his prong and autism was mine. And so we, that's what we plugged in. My official title at Diary Vineyards has always been Editor-in-Chief and Director of Ephemera. So <laughs> can't exactly put my finger on what I did all those years, but they had an effect. Yeah. And so one of the things we had to do early on was come up with a lot of marketing ideas that hadn't been developed yet. And uh, so one of the things that David and I did was uh, put on the first Thanksgiving weekend wine tastings. And was that 73? I think it was 74 or 75 that we okay. did the first one. Yeah. And I remember we had, uh, we kind of partnered up with, with uh, Gary Lawrence, who didn't have his gallery yet, right. but he knew a lot of artists in the area. And I knew Jenny and Rita and, you know, all the artist friends that we had made through you all. And so we had a big art show, wine. You had a guitarist, I think. We did. We had, a, oh, you know who we got was um, Timothy Swain from Reed College, and he had an early chamber music group. Oh, gosh, yes, he did. That was beautiful. And they came out to play, and we had Hank and Helen Hazen brought their uh, crepe cart out, and we were doing crepes in the winery and all that. And it was poor. I remember this first morning of the first day of the tasting. I was like, oh, what if we did all this? And, and it was pouring sideways rain outside. And I opened the door and there were people all the way down the block and all around because there was nothing else to do. Nobody had gone to a wine tasting before. No. And so it was a, it was a fabulous event. Hundreds of people came. We were all exhausted afterwards. I don't know if anybody actually made any money, but well, it but was you, a great you, event. I mean, you sold some wine at that. I know that yes, and once did. it got developed. Yeah, it was good to sell some wine. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the first of the Thanksgiving wine tasting weekends. Right. And, it, and we're still doing them, aren't we? <laughs> yes. I mean, at some point, I, I presume it was the, the Yamhill County Wineries Association that really wanted to have there be a, an event for all the wineries, not just... Right, right, not just sort of informally. Yeah. So that was 1983 that we had our first uh, joint, yeah. you know, and, and everybody went to all the wineries in Yamhill County were open. What were there, like 10? 
Yeah, it certainly wasn't much more okay. than that, but it was, it was more than one. Oh, you asked me about the role of women in Yamhill County in the wine industry. We did everything that, you know, needed doing. And I think all of the, you guys all knew that we were out in the vineyard and the winery and whatever needed work got worked on. But, um, so we didn't feel like, we didn't, anyway. I just remember we all gathered for a photograph of the Yamhill Wine Growers Association brochure. Or maybe it was just to advertise the Thanksgiving tasting weekend. But we, we were all gathered over at Blossers, and I remember the we all kind of got ready for the photograph. And the guy says, no, no, just the men, the winemakers. And so I've got the photograph. I'll show you. You were in it. Oh, I know the photograph. <laughs> yeah, but he said, no, just the men, the winemakers. And so here's this iconic photograph now of you all gathered together. But you can't hear all the women in the background going, oh, you know, catcalling you guys. <laughs> we were hooting. I didn't know that backstory. I, yeah. I, I mean, I probably yeah. was there. I mean, I was there. You were there, so, but it was yeah. just funny. He said, no, just the men, the winemakers. Wow. I know. They'd be, he, he would be rid out of town on oh, a rail yeah. no, at this I mean, point. <laughs> well, I, I mean, obviously it was a different time, but, um, yes. but still, it's, that's pathetic. Well, and, and also, you know, we took, it, we took it as a laugh. We thought it was funny, kind of. Yeah, I wonder. Kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad you shared that because I didn't, I, I certainly didn't remember that. And it's a particularly not very positive corner of. Well, we had some other things. I remember when I had Jim in a program up in Portland when he was little. And so as long as I was going to Portland, I was delivering wine to the restaurants and stuff. So I would drop Jim off and go to deliver wine and then come pick him back up at when school was out, the program was out. And I had to deliver wine to a couple of restaurants where the people there did not think that women should be involved at all talking about wine. I won't name any names, but I thought that was funny. Just, you know, you can deliver the wine, but don't talk to me about any of the wine. Wow. So, because I was a woman. Yeah. That's a long time ago. It is. Thank but goodness. there, it. I, I was I was reading Maria Ponzi's book, and she had that. She was relaying stories about her mother, uh, dealing that, with yeah. the same thing. Uh -huh. Yeah, and um, it was Bill from what was the great French restaurant that was the first. Bill McLaughlin. Bill McLaughlin. That Lauberge. Yeah, Lauberge, yeah. exactly. That that Bill McLaughlin gave Maria Ponzi after he first kind of turned her down and said, Oregon? He, he called her back and said, let's try a few bottles. Mm -hmm. but, but you you and Bill McLaughlin and his wife, and I mean, you became friends too. We were too. friends. Well, um, now this was... Early on, I'm not sure Lobert's was even quite open yet. Mm. But the doorbell rang, and I went to the door, and there was uh, Bill McLaughlin and Mike Vidor, who I had not met before. But they said, we've heard there's some gra wine grapes growing here. He said, do you know anything about it? And I said, yeah, that's us, and we've got, we've got, we've got vineyards planted here. And so they said, well, do you have any wine? And I think we had, well, what year would that have been? We well, 
It, when, would, it was very early. It yeah, early it's got to have been very early because when we came back from Korea in 69, Lobert's was open. They were open in 69? Yeah. Okay. It, but at that point, it was Michael Vidor only. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, so, but, they, were, so they, were, was, they were definitely in on the ground floor. Yeah. So, yes, and they carried our wine for many years thereafter, and, and we're still friends. I yeah. don't see them very often, but right. I mean, I don't, Mike Vidor is gone, but, but yeah. I don't see uh, yeah. Bill, but I always thought he was a lovely person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was a philosophy major, too. Yes. So. Were you a philosophy major? Well, David at one was point, a philosophy major. Yeah. What do you do with literature degrees and philosophy degrees? You go into the wine you business. You farm. Yeah. Of course you yeah. do. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a preparatory degree for life. Absolutely. And it gives you a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> so much of, of the wine industry, particularly in Yamhill County, but really the whole North Willamette Valley, the story goes back to you and David. And it's, it's not that you necessarily told people what to do or told them that they couldn't do this or that, but I, I, I think it was a very strong process of leading by example, if you will, that you were showing a way forward where you could be focused on quality, didn't have to be big, sell it yourself, sell it, not have a tasting room, um, do the right thing in terms of taking care of the earth, um, and and have a successful business. I can't believe it worked. <laughs> I just can't believe it. <laughs> and, and yet, in essence, people in New Zealand look to Oregon. People in both BC and to some extent Ontario have looked to Oregon for direction. Um, and uh, I mean, we've got people in South Africa that talk about the system, the legal systems that we have in place and how did we do this and how did we get the wineries even to cooperate. And I, I think the thing that is most impressive when you look at Oregon compared to these other New World areas is, by and large, we were friendly. By and large, we worked with each other. And it was, it, it's not that we didn't want to be successful or profitable in our own right, but there was a certain feeling that we had to have the industry. And we had to stick together. Yeah. We had to stick together, that it was good for everybody to do. And how would you describe your role and David's role in helping ensure that collaboration was part of this because it doesn't just happen. I think about this. Yeah. Because it wasn't anything planned or, or you know. No, I, you didn't give yeah. lectures on, on collaboration. I mean, that... I think, well, I always go, it's always a, it's always a combination of luck and pluck. <laughs> Whenever these things happen, you know, and I think we had the luck was in having a group of people that probably we accidentally had a good chemistry together, pretty good chemistry and a pretty good um, bent. There were people who were kind of going rogue 
Right. But for the most part, uh, once these ideals were explained yeah. or, or illustrated, yeah. it was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, let's stick together. Let's focus on quality. Let's... Let's hang out. Well, I was thinking the other day, wow, you know, Nick's played a big role without a plan about it. Right. Nick's Italian Nick's Cafe. Nick's Italian in, Cafe in, in McMinnville, opened in 1978. And he let us, as a wine community, bring our kids, come hang out there until the wee hours, play music, you know, sing, do, just have fun. And get to know each other, not in a meeting, not in a right. anything formal or anything where we were, you know, working. Where we, were we had a way to hang together. out together. We were hanging out. So we got to know each other. Our children got to know each other. And um, I think that played a, a big part. Yeah. Activities like that. But, but that kind of atmosphere helped us be friends as well as... You know, in the industry, collaborators in an industry, and and it it led to a lot of kind of informal tribalism or something, you know. So, um, so I think the luck was in having some of those things happen that we couldn't have planned. We couldn't have said, "Oh, let's have a gathering place," and this is, you know. So I think we, I think we were, I think we're a lucky industry, yeah, as well as you know, with lots of courage and and ideals. One of the things that I point to is that David and Chuck and Dickie Rath and Dick Ponzi and a number of the others, even me just barely, were all born before the end of World War II. We weren't really baby boomers. We were pre-baby boomers. We were, yeah, whatever, whatever that was. But it seems to me that that previous generation, which came of age in the, in the 50s and Early and, 60s, yeah. And, and really lived through the idealism of the, the, the beginning of the Kennedy uh, years, that that idealism sort of became part of our industry. Yeah, I think that we brought that to the industry, yeah, yeah. that idealism. And that had, had the industry not started for 10 more years... It would have been different. It would have been very different yeah. because it wouldn't have had that idealistic base that building a successful industry is almost more important than the individual success of any of any of entity. Any of the, yeah. Well, and I think um, to that point, a lot of us might not have gotten into the thing in the first place if, right. if we hadn't been kind of ide- idealistic and looking towards that. You yeah, know? we would have been looking for something that would make us money. Yeah, or just, yeah. And in, instead, we were looking for something that we could build to be important. Oh, so, this can be. This is so creative, and what? And it's wide open, and we can do anything. Yeah, it was. And I, you know, as I was going through a lot of memories here, I was thinking there were a lot of sad times, and there were some scary times. And a lot of us probably thought, you know, are we going to make it? You know. I, I know the Blossers at one point, Bill Blosser told me he had three vintages of Pinot in his warehouse. Mm-hmm. This was, when would it have been? Probably mid-80s, something like that. And he wasn't sure how they could ever sell that amount of wine. It took us two years to sell 200 bottles of wine. The first 
the first couple hundred. And we were pooping along and pooping along really very, very slowly until that tasting in France. And that was, now look, that's what, 15 years? Yeah. That's and even happening that, overnight. Yeah. And even at that, that didn't go like this. No. It just it came tilted up. the curve up a little bit. Well, what actually, I just remember with the fabulous thing about after the news came out about that tasting in Burgundy was that we could actually get a distributor outside of Oregon to answer the, to talk about it. You know, they just weren't interested. It was just weird stuff, you know? Yeah. So anyway, whew, I'm glad. <laughs> I am very surprised every time I think about it that this actually worked out. <laughs> what, what was the worst or the closest to disaster that you can remember? The worst vintage we ever had was 1984. Yeah. I mean, that barn. In, in that barn. And so what they did was they were picking grapes into, were you involved here with that? No, well, we had our own version of it, okay. but I knew all about it. All right. Well, we were picking into those yellow plastic bins and taking them into the barn and stacking them. And we had those big fans and heaters. So we were warming and drying. The, it rained and rained. Um, that was that was Texas rain. That wasn't Oregon rain. Yeah, that was, no, it was drops that big, and yeah. it was pouring every day and cold. So they were picking the grapes. The tractors were getting stuck in the mud. The, everybody was miserable. But we put the put the unloaded the trucks, put the grapes in, warmed them up and everything, then put them in the trucks, covered them with tarps, and got over to the winery as fast as they could and processed the grapes. And uh, David always said after that, if we did 84, we can do anything. Don't even <laughs> worry about it, you know. So <laughs> that was the worst. And the wines came out good. Yeah. They were good. But, whew, that was, uh, that was hard. What was your proudest moment? My proudest moment was our 50th anniversary of Irie Vineyards, watching Jason conduct, put together and conduct that fabulous program that he put on. And I thought to myself, this, this just ties a bow on the whole thing. You know, David would have been so proud and I was certainly proud and I felt like our legacy was in very good hands, and that also Jason was going to do a great job of carrying the torch further for the industry, which he does. He is very involved. Yep. So that was my proudest moment, and I think my best contribution to the Oregon wine industry is Jason. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope he doesn't see this. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be embarrassed, but I do feel that way. Yeah. I, of course, I am his mother. Well, I, but he's I doing mean, a great. And, and he's he, doing a great job. He is doing a great job, and he isn't just doing what David would have done. No, he's being very creative, and he's calling on lots of things that he's interested in, which. I am happy that yeah. he's finding a lot. He's doing label designing, and he's being. He's doing Involved in all kinds right? of stuff. Yes, he's doing his own artwork on the labels, and he's he's planting new varieties, yep. and he's he's really it's his. He's made it right. his, right. and this is his 15th anniversary as winemaker this year too, wow. which is sort of amazing. But yeah. um, I wish David could just get a 
little furlough every once in a while and come back and check on how everything's going because I know he would approve. <laughs> yeah, I think he would. Yeah. I, so. He might question this or that from Jason, but... Um, oh, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, it, it, I think Jason's a better winemaker. Oh, now we're not... Oh, my God. <laughs> you can cut that off, but I do. No, I... I, I, I think he's I think doing he's a, a very good job. And I think he has made the brand it's very his. current. It's his. Yeah. Well, it's his. Yes. But it's, it's, it's a very up-to-date brand. Yes. It isn't a past brand. Right. It's not oh, one of the old... You yeah. Know. I mean, it's that... Too, but the branding is for today, and it is currently attractive. I mean, the the old vine Pinot Gris, for instance, mm-hmm. is really out there wine, and it's. I, I give them a lot of shit about it because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like his version of orange wine, except that it's delicious. I know. <laughs> <laughs> So I hope we can keep those old vines for a little longer. Yeah, it's cool. So, yes. Diana, thank you for... Well, this was fun. I was, I was nervous about it. And also, the weight of memories is heavy sometimes. Yeah, yeah it is. And uh, I was thinking, though, but we had a lot of fun. A lot of music, a lot of wine, a lot of great food, a wonderful There was a people. night of dancing, even, in my... <gasps> Do you remember the night we cleared, you and I, we cleared the dance floor to the kazoo band playing varsity drag. (laughs) (laughs) We were great. (laughs) I don't know that I remembered the kazoo band part. That was the best part. That was the best part, the kazoo band. (laughs) We were great, or at least we thought we were. (laughs) And really, what else matters? I. We might have to do it again. I'm not sure I can move like that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was both daunting and fun. Yeah, great. And um, I so appreciate you not just sitting down now, but discussing this and thinking about it and coming up with, I think what, what, you, will, what you will have contributed to this is this, the, the, the special gravitas that really the founding family of the Willamette Valley wine industry can provide in a way that nobody else can. And thank it, you for asking. Oh, for the interview. I've really enjoyed it. And of course, I love you. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's so great to be with you. And um, thanks. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com 50 years, to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.